So we, we've began this new series going through First Peter. And really what happened last week is we kind of stopped mid-thought in the opening of Peter's letter and his introduction. And so we're going to pick back up in the rest of uh, what he was explaining about the the greatness of the gospel and what God's work is for us. He is opening up the letter talking about the glorious gospel and what God has done. Next week, we're going to see as he moves to talk to us about how we should respond to this glorious gospel and how we should live in light of it. But we're continuing today in, in the finishing up this introduction. So I'm going to pick back up where we left off last week and what we were looking at last week, this very same opening exhortation, same one that we had last week, that God is worthy of praise. That God is worthy of praise. And I want to pause to say here that Number one, we have to be very careful as part of the church, as believers, that we we don't find ourselves going along with phrases that we are familiar with and that we know we should agree to without pondering in our hearts whether or not that phrase is a reality. So in this room, if you're a believer, you would say yes to that. God is worthy of praise. But that's really not the question right now. The question is whether or not that reality is true in our hearts. Whether or not we praise God. And whether or not we find Him worthy of our life's praise and our worship. In the depths of their hearts and their minds, the entire world knows God is worthy of praise. Paul writes in Romans 1, and he says that in a general sense, God has shown Himself to all of creation. He's not hidden from their sight. His power, His divinity are clearly perceived in the things that He has made. If you see a painting, you know there's a painter. If you see creation, you know there's a creator. We may may deny that. We may convince ourselves that that is not true. But the Word says, in the depth of our hearts and minds, we know it. And yet, although people realize there is a God, Paul goes on to say that they will not praise Him and they will not give thanks to Him. They go on about their days. They live their life. They think about themselves. They think about themselves as clever, enlightened, wise. They... Make a great exchange, Paul says in Romans. They have chosen to exchange giving up the worship of God the Creator in order that they can worship the things that God made that they deny or even from His hand. And that includes themselves. 
They pursue peace. They pursue happiness. They pursue fulfillment. They pursue purpose because every creature pursues those things. But they look for peace and happiness and fulfillment and purpose in the things that they can touch and what they can taste and what they can grasp and hold on to with their hands. They prefer to be made much of by other creatures and do what is right in their own eyes. They want to be their own God. They don't call themselves a God, but in reality, that's what they want to be. They want to decide life for themselves. Even if they pray occasionally, it is just when they get brought to a place to where they realize it's their last hope or their last chance and it's a last resort. But it doesn't change their heart that they ultimately want to decide life for themselves. And so Paul says, because of these things, the anger of God is upon them. Because by their unrighteousness, they have suppressed the truth. In other words, because they want to do what they want to do, they deceive themselves and they deceive others because they want their own way. That is how most of the world lives. If you are in this room and you're a Christ follower... Before you came to know Christ, that's how you lived. In this room today, if you confess to be a Christ follower, but you live that way, there is a spiritual problem. If you live, as Paul just described in Romans 1, but you call yourself a follower of Christ, there's a problem. There's a spiritual issue. Because what we saw last week is that Peter expects differently from the church. Everything that we just described is not true of the church. And that's what Peter showed us last week. He is writing to these congregations throughout Asia Minor. We don't even know that he's ever met them. We know he hasn't met all of them, but we don't even know if he knows anyone in these churches, but he's writing to them. And he opens up saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of praise. The whole world doesn't think that. The whole world doesn't honor Him and thank Him for life. But you do, because you're different. Because you're the church. And His call to them to say that the Lord is worthy of our praise is not a call of judgment. It's one of encouragement. Perhaps some of them, He intends it to be a stirring because they're living for Jesus. And so He's stirring them to keep going, keep going, be strengthened, even in the midst of discouragement from a world that's persecuting them. And as we've talked about, the persecution is going to get worse. Or perhaps some of them, Peter realizes, may be wandering from the faith. They may be tempted to go their own way or... Even Jewish Christians go back to their old religion. And so he's warning them, reminding them that they might be drawn back. God alone in Christ is worthy to be praised. So know that, church. Believe that. 
You live in a world that doesn't. You live in a world that has chosen to worship created things rather than the Creator, but you're not like that. God is worthy of your praise. And so he opens up this letter laying out for them not just that God is worthy of praise, but the motivation of that praise. He doesn't just say God's worthy and then leave them, but he says God is worthy and then he begins to explain why. And the motivation of our praise, Peter writes, is this glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus. And what we saw last week is he tells those believers in the church, you're not like the world because God has had mercy on you. You haven't elevated yourself to some higher spiritual or mental plane than everyone else, and therefore you figured out what no one else can. No, God has had mercy on you. That's why you believe this gospel. He has given you spiritual life. He has taken you from the dead things where you find fulfillment and happiness in in created things, and He has shown you something far greater. You have spiritual life. You have a growing expectation of the blessings that come from being united with Jesus in faith. He has reserved for you a share of the new creation inheritance. And not only has He reserved for you that inheritance, but He has secured you by faith until you reach full possession of that inheritance. So you church together, you're not following the pattern of Romans 1 any longer. Your heart is with Jesus. You gladly worship Him because your life is filled with continual joy for what He's done for you. Over and over you come back to it. What Christ has done. What Christ has done. What Christ has done. You gather with other believers. You sing about it. You celebrate it. You ponder it. You talk to others about it because it wells up in you. You pursue peace and you pursue happiness and you pursue fulfillment and you pursue purpose as all creatures do, but you pursue those things in God, not apart from God. You prefer to be made much of by Jesus, not man. Because you'll have to choose. You'll have to choose whether you want to please those around you in a watching world or whether you want to please Him and you want to please Him. And not even trials can take you away from this joy. Because you know that even in trials, God purposes hard times for your good. That He uses trials to build you up and purify your faith. So Peter's preaching this and he's saying this to the church. God is worthy of praise. Here is why. And so we stopped in the middle of it last week. We're going to pick it up. We're going to finish these opening thoughts. But I want to give you a similar encouragement to what I gave you last week. As you listen, as we talk about this glorious gospel, if you're a believer, it has been my prayer today that you would never fail to see the divine privileges that are yours in Christ. 
and that you would never take them for granted. Don't let your faith become commonplace. Don't let it be a small thing to you that the God of the universe has had mercy on you and granted you these divine privileges. Don't get lost in the world. Don't get lost in what you can see. Understand the privilege that you have been given. Meditate on them. Meditate on these privileges. And today, let your appreciation for the gospel increase. And as your appreciation for the gospel increases, let it lead to increased affections for God. And if you're not a believer, or if you're stuck in that place that so many of us have found ourselves, the same place I was when I walked into this church 18 years ago, wandering between two loves, knowing something of God and some affections for Him, but also loving the world and the things of it and distracted by that. If that's you or you're just simply not a believer, would you please listen today? Would you please consider the love of God for you in Christ? Would you please know that you are never as far from God as you feel? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, these things will be theirs. It is a sure promise. Repent, turn back, embrace the love that you've had before. Let today be a day of coming to or returning to Christ as His gospel is preached. So let's look at this life truth. Believers are recipients and participants in a mysterious and glorious gospel. Believers are recipients and participants in a mysterious and glorious gospel. And I started with that life truth today because some of us suffer from the mistake of taking the gospel for granted. There are many benefits to growing up in church as so many of us have in the South. There's a lot of benefits to that. But there's some drawbacks too. And the drawbacks of growing up in church is that it's easy in the South, and I say this to you all the time, but I think it's so important. It's easy in the South that church and religion and Jesus and God are just, it's just part of the experience. There are just certain things that you know and embrace if you live in the South. And one of them is God, church. Sundays, when, when I was growing up, we went to church and we went to Nana's house. And Nana cooked and it was good. And we stayed there all afternoon. And we played, I played with my cousins and it was an every Sunday routine. And honestly, growing up, church was the thing that I needed to get through so I could get to Nana's. And some of us, we grow up with a religious experience and it's beneficial to us except religion and experiences can't save us. It doesn't make you love the gospel. It doesn't make you appreciate the gospel. 
And so some of us, we suffer from the fact that we take it for granted. So I want to say to us this morning that the gospel is the most amazing message in human history. There is nothing like it. There's nothing you'll ever hear like it. There's nothing you'll ever experience like it. The greatest show on Netflix, the greatest movie in the theaters, whenever they open them up if they haven't already. But anyway, those things... like. A story cannot be told that has the majesty to it of the gospel. You could search the truths of the gospel for the rest of your life and you will never fully grasp all of its riches. You could start today and the rest of your life just pour into searching the gospel, searching scriptures, and you'll never get to all the riches before you die. And it doesn't matter if you're five or fifty-five, that is true. So I'm using this language that the gospel is glorious and it's mysterious. And I'm using that language the Bible uses. Mysterious meaning a secret which will remain a secret unless God grants you divine revelation. The gospel is a mystery that you'll never understand unless God gives you revelation. You'll never be able to figure it out on your own. If you have a Bible this morning... Look at a couple of passages with me. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 7. I'm going to walk through a few of these verses. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He's talking about his own ministry of the gospel. And he says in verse 7, We, as ministers, impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The gospel, pausing there, was something God decreed before time began. The gospel wasn't plan B. God wasn't taken by surprise when Adam and Eve rebelled. The gospel was planned. And it was planned, look at what Paul said, for our glory. All glory eventually goes to God, but He planned for us to participate in that glory with Him. Verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this hidden wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Paul's there. The Bible is telling you that you have never seen what God has prepared for you. You have never heard what God has prepared for you. You've never been able to imagine what God has for those who love Him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of the person which is in him? We can pause there and just say that's a good thing sometimes, right? Like the only person who knows what I'm thinking is me. Who knows what God is thinking? The Spirit of God. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Only the Spirit of God knows the mind of God, and God has given believers the Spirit of God that we might understand this gospel. You can't grasp it without Him. 
Look at one more passage. If you'll go over to Colossians 1. Look at Colossians 1, and we'll look at verse 24. Paul again writing to a different church, Colossians 1. He says, now, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here Paul says, I've not only received the gospel but I'm a participant in it. Christ has suffered, and I suffer for the gospel. And I proclaim this message, and He's made me a minister of this message. And I proclaim this mystery, which is Christ is in you, and that is the hope of your glory. And He goes on to say that I proclaim and warn everyone and teach everyone, and I do these things. I struggle with all of the energy that He works within me. So the point of this is the riches of the gospel are revealed to you only by the Spirit. You can't reach them on your own. But you're not just receiving this Word. You are participating in it. You participate in sufferings for the gospel and you participate in making this mystery known to other people. All believers have a stewardship from God. So we are recipients and we are participants And I would go as far as to say that your participation is evidence that you've received the gospel. If you participate in God's kingdom and in His works, that is evidence that you have received this gospel. And so I say that as a life truth to us because I don't want us to just think of the gospel as this simple message that we've heard our whole life and then go about our day. It is the most profound, the most amazing message in all of human history and you can only understand it by the Spirit of God and you are invited to not just hear it and grasp it, but participate in it. So let that guide us as we look at some of these factors of this mysterious, glorious gospel, some of the attributes of this mysterious, glorious gospel that Peter talks about. One of the glorious things about it, one of the mysterious things about it, is that you have a love for God that is not dependent upon sight. You have a love for God that is not dependent upon sight. That's what Peter says in verse 8, where Kevin started us this morning. Though you have not seen Him, You love Him. Is that true? Peter had seen Jesus. Peter could close his eyes and he knew what Jesus looked like. He had memories of spending time with Him, of walking with Him and ministering with Him, 
of what we would call hanging out with Him, eating meals with Him, laughing with Him. Like some of you who have a, a loved one that you've lost and you can close your eyes and picture your times with them and what they looked like, sounded like, Peter could do that. But he knew that these believers in these churches, mainly Gentiles, did not have that experience. Yet, he did not hesitate to say to them, you share in my love for Jesus even though you've never seen Him. We have no indication, again, that Peter knew these churches or the people in them. We have no way or reason to think that he had received reports back. He's simply saying, I know you love Jesus as I do, even though you've never seen Him. And the word he uses there for love is delight. I know you delight in Jesus the way I do. And my question to you is, how could Peter say that? How could he say with confidence... I know you delight in Jesus. I know you haven't seen Him, but I know you love Him. And my answer is that this is the expected outcome of your salvation. That if you are saved, you delight in Jesus. You may not know what that means at the beginning of your walk with Him, but you can't get away from Him. You love Him. And as you walk with Him, you delight in Him more and more and more. It is not, it is not a routine, boring religion. It is a relationship with the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. You delight in Him. You love Him. That's what Lisa read for us this morning in this opening passage in 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What is John saying there? He's saying, if you truly love God and you truly love others, and I use the word truly to indicate love as God intends, the world can love each other in a, in a way that is just scratching the surface of what true love is, but Believers, we really get to experience love. And we really get to show love to others. Because we've been born of God and we know God. That's what John says. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What John is saying there is love is not what we do to be born again, but love is what God does to us to cause us to be born again. Love is what God gives us. Love is what God infuses our hearts with. Romans 5.5 says that. God has poured His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, God pours His love into your heart. Your love for Him and your love for others. I was having a conversation last night with a member of our church who's going through a horrific trial and one of the gravest injustices I, I have heard of before in something that's being done to her by 
even her own earthly family. And as we were talking about it and she was crying, she said to me, I don't want to hate them. Pray that I would not hate them. And I say to you that her desire to not hate someone is because God's love is in her. Our ability to look at even our greatest enemies and have compassion on them and have love for them and to know in our heart, I don't want to hate anyone. Even though my flesh pulls me in that direction, I don't want to hate anyone. It's because God has poured His love into our hearts. So believers, please hear me. God delights in you. God loves you. He delights in you. It isn't that He just loves the whole world and you're one of the whole world. You know Him and love Him because He had mercy on you. Because He planned your glory in the gospel before the ages began. He delights in you. It's not just that He loves you, but He doesn't want to be around you. He delights in you. Zephaniah, I know you're familiar with him and his book. Zephaniah said that that God rejoices over you and He sings over you. God sings loudly over His people. My question is, do you believe that? Because if you believe that, it changes everything. Nothing in your life will ever be the same if you believe God delights in you. Because if you believe who God is, and you believe God delights in you that way, there is nothing anyone can do to you. There's nothing you could ever face on this earth that would remove from you an understanding of your worth and your value. Because the Creator of the universe calls you His. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, would you cry out today that you would believe that? You've never seen Jesus But if you're a believer, you've met Him. If you're a believer, you know Him. You can walk with Him. You can fall asleep talking to Him. You can wake up talking to Him. You can go out. You can walk. You can get quiet somewhere and He will meet with you. And you will know Him. And one day, you will see with your eyes the person that you have spent all of your Christian life loving and listening to and fellowshipping with. And His love can overflow from you to others. This glorious, mysterious gospel is you have a love that is not dependent on sight, and furthermore, you have a trust that is infused with joy. You have a trust infused with joy and accompanied by progressive transformation. It's a lot of words there. If you love Jesus... You have a trust 
in Jesus. And that trust is accompanied by joy, and you also have this progressive changing or transformation that's happening in your life. So Peter writes, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And I would say to you that that can be read, you believe into Him. Your trust is into Jesus. You believe into Him and you rejoice with joy. That means literally you rejoice with joy, you praise with gladness. You don't just praise because you have to, you are glad to praise God. You believe into Him and you praise Him with gladness. You believe into Him, you rely on Him. You trust Him for everything, or you're learning how to. You see that there's nothing in your life that you shouldn't or can't pray for. You can bring everything before Him. We're, we're not accustomed to that. Especially those of us in this room who are, who are men. Our first thought is, okay, let me fix it. And we formulate our plan of how to fix it. Maybe every now and then we'll take our plan to God and say, I know I should pray. Is this okay? This is what I'm going to do. Let me know if it's not. We can trust Him for everything. We can take everything to Him. We can pray about everything. One of the greatest gifts my mom ever gave me was I remember as a child praying when her and I were alone by ourselves going to the grocery store at night that we would find a good, well-lit parking space up front. I remember praying that every single time we went to the grocery store. You know what? It's not silly. It's not a sign of undeveloped or immature faith. It's a sign of relying on Jesus for everything. He cares about everything about my life. That doesn't mean He thinks about my life the way I do, but He cares about everything in it. And you rejoice with joy in that. You can trust Him for everything. You see Him answer prayers. I remember Josh telling me about me talking one time about trying to fix something on a car and just not being able to get it done and stopping and praying for it and it getting like the thing that I was trying to get done got done. I remember him telling me being, I don't remember the story exactly, but he was on a ladder or something. He was looking for something and he remembered that story. So he prayed about it and immediately God helped him to see the thing he was looking for that he needed just as a reminder that he cares about everything. And we, when that happens, we rejoice with great joy. My question to you is, do you feel that joy? Do you feel the joy in Christ? Some of us, We've grown up in joyless churches. We've grown up in places where joy is not talked about. And so our whole mind of religion and walking with Jesus is that it's joyless and it's just all about obedience. And do not, do not mistake the fact that yes, we are called to obey, but even our obedience is joy when we love Jesus. The gospel is about joy, joy in Christ. And if you have not 
known that joy in Jesus. It's not because the Christian religion is broken. It's because our understanding of the religion is broken. And he uses two descriptors about this joy. He says, this joy that you have is inexpressible and filled with glory. He says, it's inexpressible. At times, you will have so much joy overflowing because of what God has done for you that you you won't even have the words to talk about it. And I was reading this week a, a theologian who said, I just love this quote, he said, the word unutterable or inexpressible describes a joy so profound as to be beyond the power of words to express. This reminds us of the value of singing and of other kinds of music in worship because music often provides a vehicle for expressing the fullness of joy in a Christian's heart in a way that is much more effective than spoken words alone. I think God in His kindness has given us, is giving us even now a revival of understanding of what worship is and what it can be to sing glories and sing about joy in the gospel. Sometimes it's inexpressible otherwise. And this joy is also filled with glory. It is filled with glory. One more place I want to have you go this morning. Second Corinthians. Go over quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I want you to see something that Paul says, very interesting. This joy that we have is filled with glory. This belief we have is filled with glory. What does that mean? Paul writes to the church in Corinth a second time. And in verse 7 he says, If the ministry of death, and he's talking about the Old Testament, Old Covenant system of uh, receiving God's written law and then obeying it, and he calls it here the ministry of death, not because it was a it was a bad system, but because it was an insufficient system that did not and was not able to give us life. And he says, if that ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was bring, being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And look down at verse 12. He says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. I don't know if you know or remember that story, but when Moses would go and spend time with God and he would receive the law of the Lord, when he came down off the mountain, his face was glowing. Was actually shining because of God's glory. But over time, as he was out of the presence of God, that glory would fade. So Moses would put a veil over his face. Perhaps because it was so bright, it hurt the Israelites' eyes, but also because he did not want them to see that eventually the glory went away. What does that have to do with us today? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 17. Now the Spirit Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here's what Paul says. The old covenant was insufficient to give life, but even then, when Moses spent time in God's presence, he would have a glory about him 
that would eventually fade. But you and I today have the Spirit of God in us and we can behold the glory of God. And not only does that glory not fade off of us, but we are slowly being changed by that glory and transformed into the image of Jesus. And so back in First Peter, I think his point is this. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And what is that glory? You are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think what Peter is saying is that day by day, as you love Jesus and believe in Jesus and rejoice in Jesus, you are progressively being changed. You're being set free as Paul called it, and you are changing into His likeness. So I say to us, church, do not give up. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up in the thing that you need freedom from, the thing that it seems like you just can't reach there, you can't get there. Don't give up. Keep going. Because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith. As you love Jesus and believe in Him and rejoice in Him, you are being changed. And how do you know for sure? You ask that question, how do I know for sure? Because of this, look, you live in the grace and the glory obtained for you by the sufferings of Jesus. You live right now in the grace and the glory obtained for you by the sufferings of Jesus. So look at what Peter says, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He says, this grace is yours. What is the grace? It is all of the promises of the New Testament. It's the promises of God. It's the power of God. It's belonging to His church. It's the gifting of His Spirit. It's life in Christ. And these are yours because of the sufferings of Christ. So I'll say again to us. Don't find it a little thing, this privileged gospel. Christ suffered that you wouldn't. If you love Him, you care about that. He suffered that you would not take for granted this gospel. Romans 8.32 tells us that if God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Do you really believe that there is anything good God would withhold from you if He's already given you the life of His Son. How many people who confess Jesus walk away from Jesus or doubt His love in the midst of trials, yet has not God already on record showed you His love for you in giving you the most precious thing that He had? 
the life of His Son. Has not Jesus shown you that He will not withhold anything from you if He suffered and bled and died for you? And the answer to that is, no, He will not withhold anything good. He might change your idea of what good is. He might allow you to go through difficult times so that your faith is purified, but He will not withhold anything from you. We sang those words this morning. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We were, we're forgiven. We're accepted. We're redeemed by His grace. Don't let that be a light thing to you. Don't overlook the privilege of that. And you say, but life's hard. Life's hard. You don't know what I'm going through. Life's difficult. You don't know what I'm dealing with. And I, I know that. I know there are very real hurts and very real pains. But can I just say to us that so often in our life we let our circumstances preach to us about God rather than preaching God to our circumstances. We let what we're going through dictate to us how we feel and how we view God rather than let God change how we view our circumstances and what we're going through. Christ suffered and received glories. Church, we will follow that pattern. Christ suffered and received glory. His church doesn't get to skip that formula. We will suffer and receive glory. And in this room... Each one of you suffer in unique ways. Your sufferings are not like everyone else's. Not, not specifically. There's general sufferings we all face. But some of us, we have specific sufferings. But I also say to you that we each also have a peculiar glory that comes from those sufferings. There are blessings you have in Christ that come from the specific sufferings that you're facing. Would you believe that? Would you believe that you are served by the prophets of centuries past? Verse 12. You are served by the prophets of centuries past. That's what Peter said. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, they searched and inquired carefully. They wanted to know what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was talking about. But it was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets in the Old Testament didn't just robotically write things and preach things. They said what God wanted them to say. They wrote what God wanted them to write. But they were moved by what they wrote. They were moved by what they heard. And they said, I want to know what this is about. Zephaniah did this. Isaiah did this. Moses did this. They tried to figure out what these prophecies meant. Specifically, who and when. But God told them, it's not for you. This isn't for your time. You are serving those who will come later. And church, we're those who came later. We have the benefit of looking at the Old Testament 
in all of these prophecies and all of these types and all of these events and seeing Jesus. We're the heirs of what they wrote. Not only that, but we are taught by the Holy Spirit. You and I are taught by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12 again. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What does that mean? It means that if I am a true called pastor, I am not the one preaching to you. The Holy Spirit is. So what, what's for me and what's my mindset or things I say need to fall away. But somehow God uses what is being preached if I am truly called then that comes from the Holy Spirit. But not just me. Any minister of the Gospel. You, when you share Christ with someone, or if you teach a class, if you're called to do these things, and you are called to share Christ with everyone, it is the Holy Spirit who works through you. He teaches. When the worship team sings and we learn from these lyrics, it's the Holy Spirit that teaches. And church that we would believe that when we sit down and we open Scripture, it is God who meets with us to teach us. You are not just opening some dusty old book that you don't understand, but you can open this up and you can say, God, will you teach me? And the God of the universe, through His Spirit, will come and be with you and sit next to you and He will teach you what His Word means. And when you pray this Word, He will teach you. Would you believe that? And would you believe that you are privileged to experience that which angels seek to understand? You are privileged to experience that which angels seek to understand. Peter ends this introduction saying, in these things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, these things, angels long to look into them. Look, if today you had an encounter with an angel in full divine form, not, not divine as in God divine, but in full angelic heavenly being form. Your temptation would be the same as John's in Revelation, to fall to your face to worship. That's what John did. And the angel quickly said, what are you doing? Get up. You're going to get both of us in trouble. Get up. Don't worship me. But that would be our temptation. Yet what you're being told is this gospel message Angels long to understand what you have. Angels strain to see into what you have. Angels know nothing of redemption. Fallen angels know nothing of redemption. They can only look at the grace of Jesus. They can only look at the gospel. 
They can only look at the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They can only look and see you living in those glories and wonder what it's like. Don't ignore the privilege you have in this gospel. Don't take it for granted. Don't let it be a small thing to you. Worship team, you guys can come up. This gospel is a divine privilege. This gospel, your receiving of it and your participation in it, is an amazing story. The most amazing message of all time. So I want to call you to what I did at the very beginning. If you're a believer, would you be strengthened by these things? If you're a believer, would you allow your appreciation for the gospel to increase? Would you allow that to lead to your affections for God increasing? And you say, well, I don't know, I don't know how to do that. Here's how you could start by asking God for more faith, more appreciation, and more affection. Can I invite you in the next few minutes as we worship together to pray that? To pray that God would increase your appreciation of this gospel and your affections for Him. And maybe you need to come up front and pray to get away from just your routine. Or maybe you need to bow where you are and pray. Or maybe you need to stand and sing and pray as you do. Like we're not just ending. This is not just the last few minutes before we get out of here. This is us responding to His Word. So would you respond by asking Him to increase your understanding and affection for Him? If you are in this room and you're wandering from Him, if you're caught between two loves, or if you're not yet a believer, It is not by chance that you are here today. It is not mere circumstance. Before the ages began, God purposed that you would sit in this room on this day or on this live stream and you would hear that He delights in you. And you would hear that He is calling you to come and delight in Him. And the Bible says, if today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. So would you respond today? Maybe where you are, it's a response to God. I want to be saved. I want to know what that means. I want to delight in you. I don't just want religion. Or maybe it is to come up front. Or maybe it is to have someone pray for you. I'm going to ask Kevin and Rob if they would come up to the side here. As we sing together, anything that you need to be prayed for, these men will pray for you about those things. And if it's about your relationship with Jesus, they'll pray for you about those things. If you want to talk about that, and often we need to talk about it, we should, before you leave here today, find someone, come and tell me, I just want to talk through my relationship with Christ. I want to talk about what that means to be saved. And I'll get your information and we'll talk. Church, would you worship today? Would you sing affectionately to God. In just a moment, we're going to see a proclamation of the gospel in baptism. Would you celebrate that?
If you are willing and able to stand, please do so. Jesus, I ask You this morning, as we've heard Your Word, would You please sing over us? You tell us You delight in us. You tell us You've set us free by Your Spirit. Would You allow us this morning to feel Your love? Would You set us free from fear, from worry? Would You set us free from sin? Would You set us free from worship of created things? Would You set us free from a dull, apathetic walk with You? Would You set us free from lies? Would You set us free from illness? Would You give us health spiritually and physically today? Would You cause us to delight in You and sing to You as You delight in us and sing over us? Would You allow us to return that back to You in worship? Would You change our hearts today? Would You break through the facades? Would You tear down the veil? Would You change us? Save us. Redeem us. Give us affectionate hearts. In Your name I ask these things. Amen.